My name's Justin. I'm a pessimist in a strange world, scouring Israel to find hope, inspiration, and goodness. Or, in other words, modern-day Lamed Vavnikim, 36 righteous souls who can show us the way. The Lamed Vav Siddiquim is a tale built on the idea that there are 36 anonymous, really good people who hide in the shadows but step forward when we need them most. This is my journey to find wonder and goodness in our once magical world. He speaks and walks and dresses like a man from another generation, another era. And frankly, he is. He represents a time that I can't really comprehend, though I try. He knocks on the door of my apartment. I welcome him. I offer him coffee. He politely declines, and we sit down. Anything off-limits? Anything you can't speak about? Nothing, he says. A pretty shocking response from Israel's most decorated general, one of Israel's most trusted voices, and most frequent reminders of history, of the price of war, of the cost of inaction, of fragility, and of sovereignty. He is casual, though, either not fully aware of his place in history, or untroubled by it. He dresses with a button-down shirt, khaki pants newly dry-cleaned, and socks pulled up almost halfway to his knees on a brutally hot day. It feels funny to speak about what he wears and looks like, like I'm diminishing the figurative giant next to me. But in a weird way, it helped paint the picture for me, then and now. This is a man of a generation of sabras defined by a discipline I wonder if we still have now, if modern Israel still has now. I don't mean to paint him or Israel or the Israeli public with an oversized paintbrush, but I started to wonder. Suddenly, the interview equipment stopped working. I began to panic, slightly. Five minutes of trying to figure it out while he sat there with the clock ticking. I couldn't reschedule Amos Yadlin. He showed up. I couldn't waste Amos's time. I decided to record this interview on my phone, hoping, somehow, it would be good enough, praying I wouldn't waste the time of one of Israel's finest generals. I'll let you be the judge. This is my conversation with retired Israeli Air Force General Amos Yadlin. So tell me about your first memory and experience with the army. My first real memory is from 67. We were in a kibbutz which was near an Air Force base, and the Air Force deployed an early warning radar next to our kibbutz. And a very tense day of waiting for the war with concerns that maybe the very young country of Israel, 19 years old, is going to end because of the Egyptian and the Jordanians and the Syrian destroy Israel very soon. And then in all the period before the war, we, the young generation that stay high school students, stayed in the kibbutz when all the, the men joined, were called to the military. We used to pick apricot every morning at four o'clock and then until after breakfast until 12 o'clock. 
And the people from the Air Force who were in this uh, early warning radar station used to come to the kibbutz dining room as well. And the 5th of June, when the war broke, uh, they came to lunch and suddenly they smiled and they say the war was decided because the Air Force destroyed the Egyptian Air Force. And this is to me like was a big surprise from a, a state of mind of concern to a state of mind of uh, victory. And this is my first real memory from what you call army and I call Air Force. How do you think the feel of that first memory wove itself throughout your career and throughout your thinking about the life of service? See, we were educated in a very small kibbutz to serve the country, to serve the state of Israel, to save the state of Israel. We had an identity of Jewish religious, Jewish nationality, and Jewish culture. And all of them mixed in kind of a miracle that after 2,000 years, we are now having a state. I was born three years after the state was born, so we grew up together. And it was very, very clear to me that when time comes, at the end of high school, I will join the IDF and... This memory about the Air Force winning a war and the fact that the kibbutz was very, very close to, to the Air Force base basically paved my way into the Air Force when I graduated uh, high school. Do you ever look back on kind of those younger years and remember what the country was like, what the Air Force was like, and then look at the Air Force and the country today? and see that transformation? I see a development. Uh, when you look back to the uh, late 60s, early 70s, Israel was much more naive, undeveloped, with a lot of concerns, because we were encircled with Arab countries. Israel was small. Israel seems to be weak. And we are fighting for the survival of Israel. Israel today is different. Israel today is a strong country. We have peace with two of our important neighbors. Egypt is the leading Arab country, the largest. And with Jordan, we have the longest border. So having peace with the Arabs, having a very strong IDF, and especially Air Force, very good intelligence that I know very well for my position as head of intelligence. So I feel Israel is much more secure than it used to be in the late 60s, early 70s. But it's a different country from a poor country, pioneering country, countries that see the values of equality, modesty, going to the desert, uh, making it a garden, uh, is today a different country. It's in Tel Aviv, it's a high-tech, very competitive society, uh, much more divided than it was in the 50s and the 60s, and even the 70s. So it's a different Israel, but... I'm still very optimistic that it's going to the right direction. You were one of the pilots who famously flew the fateful attack on the Iraqi nuclear reactor. Do you remember the moment that you were told what you were about to do or, or that it was a green light? There was no a moment that I was told. When we came back from training on F-16 in 1980, the first group of pilots that were selected to be the, the core uh, squadron for F-16. We came back to Israel in the summer of 1980, and we were told instead of uh, training in dogfights, 
and uh, be ready to dog fights with uh, MiGs, a Russian fighter, MiG-21, MiG-23, MiG-25. This was our enemy at that time. We were told that we have to train in long-range, air-to-mud, important mission. Nobody told us what is at the end of the, of the 600 miles, but we were not stupid. We look at the maps, we saw that in the north it's Turkey, in the west it's the Mediterranean, in the south nothing important, and in the east we, we understood that Iraq is building a nuclear reactor. Uh, it was a secret for us until very late, uh, Independence Day of 1981. We went down to a base called Etzion. Now it's back to Egypt, but at that time it was occupied by Israel. And this is the place we took off from. The mission was aborted in the Independence Day of 81 because of a leak. Uh, we were called again, but we at that time knew very well in Shavuot of uh, 81 where we are going. Do you remember the moment you pushed the button? Yes, I do. Look, before we went, the base commander told us, this is the most important sortie you, you're going to have on your career. And we say, what you are talking about? We want to kill mix. This is mostly our top of the profession. This guy have like 15 kills. Say so you have with your 15 uh, kills, you can say that this is the most important. But we want to kill bigs. And air-to-air dogfights were the top of the profession. But look at it in historical perspective, he was right. This is the most important sorties I flew out of 250 sorties beyond enemy lines because this is a sortie that changed history. Uh, it stopped uh, Saddam Hussein at least until 91. Then the Americans stopped him again. 2003, he was removed. And we are now 40 years, 41 years after the, uh, the attack, and the Iraqis don't have uh, nuclear weapons. Of all of the 250, maybe 250 plus missions, you know, if you look at a Wikipedia page, right? you would think, uh, you know, that's the one that gets the headline. Yes, even though I have to admit, I repeated the experience, not from the cockpit of F-16, I repeated the experience from the post of the head of, of intelligence, 2007. We found North Korean nuclear reactor in the Syrian desert, and there was a, a very deep, and not easy decision-making process that will lead to the destruction of this reactor. So I have two perspectives. One as a fighter pilot in a very difficult operational mission in 81. No fuel. If we had a dogfight on the way with Iraqis, we couldn't come back. If you touch your afterburner, you couldn't come back. The area was well defended. Iraq was in a war with Iran. So many uh, same site surface-to-air missiles, high state of alert. Intelligence was not accurate, didn't have satellites at that time. Navigation was difficult, we didn't have GPS at that time. So a very tough operational mission, but not so much concern that I was not part of it as a pilot, but for the decision makers, not so much concern about a war or the Iraqi reaction that will come after. 2007, 
the operational attack on the nuclear reactor was quite, I will not say easy, I will not say simple, but doable. Very good advanced F-16, advanced F-15s, uh, GPS, satellites, not so far away, a refueling capability. But the real concern was a war. And it was one year after the second Lebanese war. There was a danger of another war. And trying to understand when is the right time to attack it before it will be hot. How you push Bashar into deniability zone that will allow him not to go to war with Israel after the attack. These were very tough decision-making process. As head of intelligence, I gave my political superiors the idea that Bashar Assad choose to camouflage his nuclear reactor. So no air defense, no fence on the car, on the ground. The idea was that nobody will know about it. And the fact that we know that we found it, and he didn't know that we have found it, gave us an advantage. And we plan about doing it in the lowest signature possible, that will not induce or force him to go to war. If you can do it with two airplanes, fine. And the second demand from our political masters were don't rush to the TV studio and boast about it, because it will force him to retaliate. You will touch his dignity. So don't speak about it. And for 10 years, we haven't spoke about it, and it worked. There was no war after this attack as well. What do you say to people within the military, within the political establishment, within the media, within public discourse, to say Israel did it in Iraq and it worked out, Israel did it in Syria and it worked out, Israel can do it in Iran and it will all work out? I'm saying the following. Uh, never underestimate the Iranians. They are smart people, sophisticated people. They have learned the lessons from uh, Iraq, from Syria, from Libya, and their strategy is different. They don't want to reach to the bomb as quick as possible, as fast as possible. They want to reach to the bomb as safe, as secure as possible. So they are building a much more redundant infrastructure and much more defended. And the challenge is much bigger than, than 81 in 2007. On the other hand, we are also developing uh, capabilities and we have the experience of the past. And I'm not discussing the Israeli plans how to destroy the Iranian nuclear uh, program. I'm saying only three words. It is doable. After saying that it is doable, it is not preferable as a strategy. There is a better strategy to, to stop Iran. There is the agreement. It must be a good agreement, not an agreement full of loopholes. There is the sanctions regime that will force them to choose between the survival of the economy and the, the nuclear program. There is what I call strategy C, cyber clandestine covert operations. There is a regime change strategy because this is a regime that called to the destruction of Israel. Israel is not responsible to destroy every nuclear 
program in the Middle East, only to countries that call to the destruction of Israel. And last but not least, if all the other strategies uh, are not working and exhausted, you go to the kinetic uh, option. You grew up in an Israel where many people's parents, I would assume, were Holocaust survivors, whether you know directly or indirectly, the memory of the Holocaust was a fog that kind of was over the entire country. For many people, when they speak of the existential threats, you know, whether it's politicians or media, whatever, invoke, uh, you know, never again, and that this is our response. Do you think bringing the Holocaust into these discussions about existential threats, do you think it's dangerous or do you think it's legitimate? First, I was born to people who moved to Israel before the Holocaust. My grandfather and grandmother from both sides moved in the beginning of the uh, 20th century. And my parents were born here. So I don't have a, a direct uh, Holocaust survival syndrome. However, I grew up in a kibbutz with a lot of Holocaust survivors with a number on their arm and the stories, and the stories. So this is part of the Israeli DNA. You can't take it from there. And the fact that Zionism is not based on Holocaust is not known to everybody. Zionism was invented before the Holocaust. In a way, if the Jews choose Zionism before World War II, Holocaust would not ha happen. But Holocaust basically, in hindsight, said that Zionism was the right choice. So we have to take very seriously uh, the fact that people are calling to the destruction of Israel to wipe it off the map. The generation of my grandfather and grandmother, they haven't took it seriously when Hitler said in the open that he will kill all the Jews. And we have to, to be very serious when we hear it again. In the 20th century, in the 21st century, it is part of our DNA. And I take it uh, as something that not justifying everything, but it's part of my, my general way of looking at the surrounding. Something that I think you don't get enough credit for is the, the building of southern Israel as kind of like a military hotspot. You know, um, can you talk about the process of when you first started, you first saw this grand vision of utilizing the Negev, which is a great symbol of Zionism, and placing thousands of military personnel and people who work in the military in the Negev? And what was the reaction when you came with this grand vision? Yeah, I was born in the Negev. One of my earliest memories, when I was, I guess, eight years old, is David Ben-Gurion, the founder and the first prime minister of Israel, coming to my kibbutz, a group of pioneers. They wanted to have a, a kibbutz in the Negev, and unfortunately, the soil was salty, and they couldn't make living out of agriculture in this salty ground. And they decided to move. And Ben-Gurion was against it. And he came to convince them that if they want to move to a better land, only south, not to the north. And he said, the state of Israel will support you and you are not moving. So the people stayed and they developed an industry instead of uh, agricultural as the main 
source of living, which become a very famous industry of irrigation, drip irrigation called Netafim, which is now billion dollar kind of business. But the, the fact that the Negev is where pure Zionism will be achieved, I got it from, from the very beginning of my life. So when I joined to the Air Force and I saw that the, the technique is that the best airplanes are coming to the north and to the center, Ramad David, Telnov, Hatzor, and then the old generation is pushing towards the south, I say no, this is make no sense. The best airplanes should be in the Negev. This will give a push to the Negev. And when I was chief of staff of the Air Force, with the help of the Air Force commander, we changed uh, Dani Halutz at that time, we changed this uh, trend. And the best F-15 came to Hatzarim Air Force Base under my command in the late uh, 90s. And when I was chief of staff of the Air Force, we decided on sending the best F-16 to Ramon Air Base. And then, after I retired, the F-35 is now in Nevatim. I'm very proud I was a commander of Nevatim that was sent to Nevatim to close the base. And I fought against it. And I told the Air Force commander, the future of the Air Force is in the Negev. Leave the bases in the north and the center to, to become a very good real estate. But going to the Negev, you will achieve two important values which is pioneering, building the Negev on one hand, and give your air bases to, to help develop apartment in the, in the center. And when I become the head of the military intelligence, I also continue with this trend, with the vision to move units of Amman to the Negev. It's much more slower, unfortunately, than the Air Force, but the vision is there and it will, be, uh, it will become true. And now it's like the hub. It's, uh, you know, uh, among my occupations this day is, uh, I'm in the last decade, the head of the Ben-Gurion Heritage Institute. So I'm going to Sdeboker a couple of times a year. Uh, I'm going to Nevatim. I'm visiting my uh, 96 years old father in Hatserim. Wow. Uh, so all over the place, seeing the best uh, airplanes of the best Air Force flying over the Negev and see people that in the past didn't want to come to the Negev because they want to fly the best airplane. And now they are flying airplanes in the Negev, being squadron commanders of the best airplanes. It's really uh, give you a lot of satisfaction that your vision become true. Did you ever meet David Ben-Goran? Yes, when I was eight. I met him later on after he retired. I think I was uh, 13 years old when I met him at my grandfather's home in Haifa. That time he was fighting for what he saw as a just important issue against the Levi Eshkol, who became prime minister, who succeeded him. A long conversation with my grandfather, who tried to convince him that this fight is not that important. And after being the founder of the State of Israel, the one who was at the head of IDF, winning the independence war, the Sinai campaign, bringing a million newcomers from all over the world, why he's fighting against his successor? 
but Ben Gurion was very tough on that. It was very important to him. And I think I last saw him between the Six Day War and uh, the Seventy Three War, which he passed away a couple of days after, uh, when he was already in in, in uh, Sdeboker. I visited him as a young officer, and this was the last time. I sense that you have internally in your head, or or maybe when you're at Sdeboker, an internal dialogue with the man who who you first met as trying to keep people in the Negev. And then you look at your life and what you did with bringing the military and the Air Force to the Negev. I sense that you have an ongoing internal conversation with him. I do have a conversation with him, but not only about the Negev. I have a conversation with him how he was looking into the future. You know, in the past 2,000 years ago, on Bible time, we have prophets. According to the Talmud, since the temple was destroyed, there are no prophets around. Prophecy was taken from prophet and given to Ktanim Veshotim, children and fools. But this guy has the capability to look into the future. In 1946, when everybody thought that the war of the Jews in Eretz Israel will be against the local Palestinians, he saw that the war will be with the surrounding Arab countries. He has a life that he devoted to the state. He was very modest. He went to live in a a small hut in in Sdeboker, understanding that leaders have to give example. He saw the the science as the most important issue to to a nation that has no natural resources. Say we need to be with, he called it science, today you called it high tech. He understood that China is going to be a very important superpower, when everybody look at China as a third country, very poor. So I think Ben-Gurion, among the leaders of Israel, have saw the future, and after seeing the future, has a policy what to do about it. And he usually told me in, in one of my last conversations with him, you know, sometimes leaders in democratic country have to listen to the people, but sometimes They have to show the people the way, even if the people don't understand. And since he has so much credibility, people admired him and walk after him in many, many uh, cases to the right place. In some cases, not so. And so it's emotional when you go to Stabokar for you. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. He is buried on the canyon of Nahal Tzim which is the real beauty of the desert. And you stand there and you talk to him and you look to the desert and you see how much more we can still do about Zionism, about the Negev, about the values, the right values of of the state of Israel. What do you see in the future? I, I will tell you what I want to see. I want to see Israel going back to be a democratic state, which is also a Jewish state, which is very much secure state, and with the moral upper Jews are always divided. Two Jews, three opinions. Three Jews, four synagogues. But we have to find the common ground. And we have to, again, agree on where we went to take Israel. What kind of identity Israel should have. 
And I don't see contradiction between Jewish and democratic and secure and moral upper hand. We have to agree about what kind of Israel we want to do and what is Zionism all about. It's taking your destiny in your two hands. Don't wait for the Mashiach uh, on one hand and don't think that it will happen by the help of, uh, of uh, others, of the Goyim. It is Zionism is to take the destiny of the Jewish people and shape it by your own hands, which is the right policy. And this is basically what I have tried to do in my uh, after retirement in the Institute for National Security Studies that I, as non-political institute, try to tell the decision makers on one hand and the public on the other hand, what is the right direction. And there is huge challenges for the state of Israel from nuclear Iran to Hezbollah as a formidable power who is now developing precise weapon. Iran trying to duplicate Hezbollah in Syria. So the campaign between the wars. And even though people want to ignore it and to uh, repress it, we have problem with the Palestinians. If we will do nothing, we'll end up in, in, a, in a state which will be whether not democratic or not Jewish. So once again, take, decide where you want to go and shape it by your own hand. This is what Ben-Gurion would have done. And this is what the leaders of Israel should do. And the last final question is, what is the secret to a life of service? Throughout your entire career of service, what was one line that you told yourself that got you through the hard days that helped you to see the bigger visions? I think if you know where you're coming from and you want to keep this miracle that is called the state of Israel, because there were generations, hundreds of generations, since the second temple was destroyed, we were all over the place. If we wouldn't be, uh, if there wouldn't, wouldn't be pogroms and killing of Jews and assimilation, we would have been 200 million people. So only a small amount stayed and we came back to this land of our forefather. And I thought that it is my duty to try and to help this miracle happen. Because with all due respect to Almighty and with all due respect to, uh, to the superpowers, at the end of the day, if we will not be strong enough, moral enough, and smart enough, this miracle will disappear. This what was my compass in my service. Wow, thank you so much. Pleasure, pleasure. As you may have already noticed, I sometimes think of life as a movie, especially when music blasts in my ears when I walk or run in the street or by the beach. A movie that's not fully a comedy, thankfully, though not really a drama, not yet a rom-com, and hopefully never a horror movie, but a movie nonetheless. One of those timeless movies where every lesson of life can be extracted, 
where every bit of hope in humanity can somehow be restored by the ending credits. Movies that show us that the world can be a mysterious, wonderful, and loving place. Movies like The Parent Trap, Forrest Gump, Mrs. Doubtfire. I try to find the magic that lies behind these lines and characters and scenes in my own life, in my own time. Most of the time, it's just a farce in my head and I should probably see a doctor. But other times, rare times, it's as if the universe or God is winking at me. There's a lesson, a moment, a memory, perfectly timed by trillions of changes in the universe aligning. And, well, for that slight moment, life feels like a movie. As Amos left, his wisdom sat with me. And it was in that moment that I realized, maybe, just maybe, his words needed to be closer to me. This memory of hosting a giant needed to be clearer to me. And it is. I'll never delete that recording on my phone. I'll never forget the day Amos Yadlin at age 70 sat on my couch with his socks pulled high up and his pants newly ironed to speak to me into my iPhone 6SE. Yes, a 6SE. I don't know what music should have been playing the moment Amos left and the door shut, the moment I realized the chances, opportunities, and blessings that brought this moment to me. I won't question it. I'll just say, what a country. What a time to be a Jew in this land. And anytime I just need his wisdom, I'll take out my phone, press play, and listen to his words. Thanks for joining me on 36. This podcast is hosted by me, Justin Hayat. Our managing producer is Sarah Shemla. Our executive producer is Attila Samfalvi. And our editor is Robert Scarmuccia. This is a production of Soul Shop and sponsored by B'nai Zine. Please rate and review this podcast in your podcast app of choice and share it with your friends, your butcher, and your shadchan. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you again soon.